We're joined by, we're joined by Professor Jacob L. Mackey, who is Associate Professor of Classics and the Comparative Studies in Literature and Culture Department in Occidental College in Southern California. He is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, Christ Church, Oxford, and received his PhD in Classics from Princeton. Professor Mackey writes on Greek and Latin literature, but his primary academic work employs theories and findings from cognitive science in order to better understand and explain ancient Roman culture. Today, he's gonna to talk with us a little bit about a, a recent project in a, in a much talked about book that he's recently published with Princeton University Press entitled Belief and Cult from Intuitions to Institutions in Roman Religion. Professor Mackey, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and I'm honored. Um, and uh, this is the this is the book right here. And uh, I'll show you. It's uh, uh, I'll project another image momentarily. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, Matthew, uh, is it okay if I call you Matthew, or do you prefer Matt? I prefer. I'm actually Jake, so you can call me Jake. You know, that's fine. But. Uh, um, so invited me to sort of share maybe if, if I had any sort of personal motivations that got me into this, or was it all just cold, objective scholarship, you know? And uh, yeah, it's a, you know, it was a confluence of a lot of motivations. Um, I had a very um, unusual upbringing in that my father uh, was a, a philosophy professor and deeply interested in uh, medieval theology and published a lot on medieval philosophy and theology. Uh, and my mother um, in graduate school was studying Sanskrit and uh, she eventually um, um, became so taken with it that she didn't want her studies of uh, Vedic culture and Sanskrit to be merely um, scholarly, but she wanted to make it personal. And she found a guru in India who was sort of in this tradition, the tradition of Vedanta, which is this philosophical tradition um, of interpreting Vedic and later um, Indian literature, especially the Bhagavad Gita, things like that are central. Anyway, she took, so she started taking me and my sister to India and we grew up on an ashram in South India. So we, I split my time between South India and an ashram uh, in this Vedic tradition. And then back home in Texas with my, with my dad, um, hearing all about Augustine and Aquinas. And uh, so you know, religion and also these two very different traditions have always been sort of, uh, you know, it's always been something I've had to, to grapple with. And, um, and that's just an ongoing sort of life process. And it's also very enriching in many ways, uh, in addition to, uh, you know, difficult <laughs> sometimes. But uh, um, so I was studying classics and uh, doing that. And um, I came across this notion that uh greeks and romans that the belief was simply not a part of greek and roman religion and uh, i was immediately suspicious and uh and we you know you're told by the, in the scholarship that um that belief is sort of was sort of invented in by christianity somehow that it's somehow a sort of uniquely christian kind of mental state or attitude to have this attitude of uh belief and that especially pre-Christian polytheistic religions, we shouldn't we shouldn't judge them as 
being defective in belief or 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 not having belief because it's simply irrelevant to those religions and and I knew from growing up in South India where I was participating in you know temple worship in a polytheistic system that belief was very much part of that and so it seemed to me odd that the Romans and the Greeks wouldn't the belief wouldn't play some role in their um you know, sort of religious life. And so that, like in a nutshell, is what got me into the project. And I'll, um, I was also working on a lot on uh, Epicurean texts and also Epicurean, um, like uh, papyrology, like some papyri of Philodemus um, who's, that's, that was uncovered at Herculaneum, you know. I was actually going to be, I was setting out to work on a text by Philodemus on, uh, about the gods, but it was so badly damaged. That was going to be my graduate work but it was so badly damaged that it actually couldn't be worked on. <laughs> uh, and so I had to put that aside, but it was, if you get into ancient philosophical theology, Epicurean, Stoic, et cetera, it's clear that belief is at the center of it. And they're worried not only about what you, what the, what you ought to believe, but they're worried about what people tend to believe that wrecks their lives, makes them fearful and miserable because they're scared of the gods and stuff. So anyway, it was obvious to me from classical materials and from my upbringing that something was wrong with the scholarly consensus. That's what got me into it. Um, I could say more, but that's, I've maybe gone on too long about that, but uh, so that's sort of, and that's why I wanted to get into it that way. But that I think also I'll say one more thing. It also gave me a chance to like take, um, a distant kind of view of religion and ask what's going on in religion. And because I had was trying to reconcile my own upbringing and stuff. And so I wanted to study religion in a way that was um, not close to home, close to the bone, but something distant. The Romans, I could study that in a kind of objective way, um, if that makes sense. So a lot of different reasons for doing this as, and I'm, you know, I think it's the same for all of us, right? We get into what we're, we get into for all sorts of reasons um, that are only sort of sort of loosely joined and only make so much sense all put together. <laughs> so uh, let me try to display the screen. And let me say this, I, want, I would like it if this were really um, interactive. So please, all of you pause me uh, as we go. And uh, let's talk, you know, if you see something that you want to hear more about or you have a question about it or you have an observation on it please let me know and we can and we can talk now do you see uh the uh do you see a presentation not just me <laughs> okay good and you probably don't see me at all and that's just fine because i i'm not much to look at um so yeah there's the the book so let's see how do we uh how do we get started here let me just um let me just ask first any questions or comments or thoughts or anything before we go forward. All right. Well, I think if you look at some of the, if you search around in Roman, you know, materials, you find um, little snippets and hints of their own thinking about sort of, sort of where religion comes from, where their religion came from. And I have in mind this lovely little passage from Virgil's Aeneid. Um, what's happening in this scene to sort of set it up is Aeneas, you know, he's escaped the burning Troy, right? He's this Trojan prince who escaped the city when the Greeks destroyed it. And he made his way to Italy where there was this prophecy that he was going to found some kind of uh, kingdom or empire. 
And so he's in Italy and he's actually finally made his way to the site of what will someday be Rome. And there's actually um, two layers of, of people um, living there. Um, there's the most recent sort of these days in academia, we would call them settler colonialists. You know, these are these uh, um, Arcadians from Greece, these Greeks, and they have their, their king is Evander. And uh, but before them, there were these Aboriginal people that, um, um, you know, lived there. And, you know, Virgil doesn't tell us where they came from. They were just there. And so Evander, King Evander, has welcomed Aeneas warmly, and he's taking him on the, the, the tour of this site that he has settled. But it's not yet, you know, Rome at all. It's just a, a place that Evander is with his people. And so he takes him around, and, and they're looking at uh, everything, and they're seeing the Capitoline Hill. They're, you know, um, they're seeing the Aventine Hill. They're seeing things that are someday, in Virgil's time, going to be these great sort of uh, landmarks of the city. And um, now when they come to the Capitoline Hill, um, uh, Virgil tells us, you know, the narrator's voice tells us, even then, the forbidding sanctity of the place, the Capitoline Hill, uh, used to frighten the timorous rustics. Those are the Aboriginal people who live there. Even then, they trembled at its forest and rock. And of course, what he's saying is even then before the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus was built on top of the hill, right? And before it became the chief cult site for Roman Jupiter, even then it was a place with filled with sort of religious awe. And now Evander then turns to Aeneas and says, this grove, this hill with its leafy crown, a god inhabits, though which god is uncertain. My Arcadians believe that they have seen Jupiter in person when, as so often, he shakes his darkening aegis in his right hand and rouses the storm clouds. Okay, so um, what I want to sort of point out about this passage is that um, we are, in some sense, getting a kind of um, uh, a kind of um, etiology of Roman religion right here. We're getting the first stirrings of recognition that this hill is special to the gods and not just to any god, but to Jupiter, um, who is one day going to have his seat there. And um, and notice, just I just want to note that the complex process, uh, sort of cognitive uh, processes that are being referred to and, and put on display in this in this section of the poem, you get perception, uh, intuition, inference, and belief. And and so, what? Do, how does that work out? Well, the the Aboriginal natives, you know, are struck by their intuition of the religio of the place, the sanctity of the place. They just feel it. It's not something they see, in a, but they just feel it. They have this intuition that it, there's something s- sacred there. Now the Arcadians, they have seen something, right? They have its perception. Um, they've seen something and they come to believe 
uh, that it's Jupiter. And maybe this, uh, they come to this belief through inference, right? It's not that they see, it's not that they're certain they've seen Jupiter. They believe they've seen Jupiter, uh, but it's because they've seen basically storms, right? They've seen the storm clouds and the thunder and everything. And that is associated with this sky god, this storm god. And so they think that must have been Jupiter. We saw something and that must have been Jupiter. It's inference. Evander now, in turn, now he believes, he definitely believes there's a God, right? Um, he says a God inhabits this hill, but it, uh, we're not, I'm not sure which. So he believes there's a God and he doesn't know which, but he's happy to accept that there is a God. Um, so the point is simply that this is, you know, this, this passage is rich with all this cognition, religious cognition, perception, intuition, inference, belief, right? Um, so. Uh, yeah. So it's these kinds of intuitions, perceptions, and beliefs that are going to ultimately lead to the founding of, uh, you know, going to lead to Roman religion as a, a way of dealing with this divine presence and this the sanctity that is felt in this place. So what is my, you know, what is my thesis? That's a kind of little introduction by way of just looking at a snippet of text and, um, and showing sort of what can be pulled out of it. But my thesis in this book is, sent, is, is pretty simple. It's just that belief was central to Roman cult, but not in the same way that it was central or is central to, to you know, ver the various uh, Christianities that have existed historically and exist today, where, you know, often is not, as in like Paul's epistle to the Romans, believing itself is somehow uh, salvific or central um, to the system. Right. The Romans didn't think that believing in and of itself was an important sort of mental act or something. But as you can see from that passage we just read, they they talked about belief. Um, so I uh, um, would also say then even an orthoprax and what that means is a, a, a system. Uh, well, uh, an orthoprax and polydox <laughs> religious system like the Romans depended upon belief. What does orthoprax mean? Orthopraxy is, you know, uh, ca uh, characterized by um, performing rituals and getting them just right, right? And so a lot of scholars will say orthoprax systems don't need, they don't have orthodoxy. They don't have any emphasis on believing correctly. All you have to do is act correctly. Um, and then uh, I would also say the Roman system, you know, the Roman religious sort of system was polydox. It was, you know, or uh, it, it was, you could believe all sorts of things. There was no catechism. There was no attempt to corral beliefs. You know, there was no Christological controversies, uh, that kind of thing. You could believe a lot of different things and still be comfortably accepted within the system. Okay, so um, just because it's orthoprax and polydox doesn't mean there wasn't belief and that belief wasn't deeply important. Um, now, so like very specifically, the chapters sort of go through and spell all this out. Roman religious emotions, actions, norms rituals and institutions like the institution of a priesthood um, or something like that or the institution of uh, receiving and dealing with prodigies you know this was a big thing in roman uh, 
social and political and religious life. All these things, emotion, action, norm, rituals, institutions, all these Roman socio-religious realities depended on Roman belief, and they depended for, on Roman belief for their very existence. And so you can't understand. If you think the Romans could have religious emotions, as we saw the um, Aboriginal people uh, having, they had this feeling of awe. If you, could, if you think they could feel that, you, you have to accept that they had beliefs. If you think they could engage in religious action, you have to accept that they had belief. If you think that they could subscribe to religious norms, you have to accept they had belief, and so on. And that's what I try to explain in the book, um, that you can't have any of these things if you don't have belief. And so let me just pause right there and just ask if there's any questions. Um, so I, I wanted to mount this sort of broad attack um well I'll, I'll pause yeah questions about that yes uh i don't know if i need to use the uh the raise hand function here i'm terribly sorry that my um my microphone isn't working but i wanted to pose the question that i understand certain later greek philosophers um entertain monotheistic ideas my understanding is that particularly in the hellenistic period some of the stoics might have entertained monotheistic ideas i'm wondering yeah. to what extent given, um, you know, uh, polydoxy, that that would have been acceptable within the Greco-Roman religious worldview. Yeah, I mean, it appears to have been completely acceptable as long as you didn't try to go around and say that um, you had, I mean, what, one of the things that got early Christians in trouble is saying you had one God, there was one God and one God only, and all your all the other gods that you're accustomed to recognizing are just demons or figments of your imagination. As long as you didn't do that, <laughs> your neighbors were happy to accept uh, that your quirky belief, you know? Um, and uh, you could also figure out ways to make the world of polytheism make sense. So like Vero will talk about how, yeah, like according to the sort of natural theology, he has this tripartite theology. Natural theology would would posit that there really is only just this one sort of divinity, but uh, according to like civic theology, the kind of theology that city-states utilize um, in their dealings with the divine, they've, they've seen fit to sort of divide up all the different facets or aspects of the divine into all these different sort of personages, right? And for him, that's fine. You, you can fit all that stuff together if you want, and it's no big deal. And no one was trying to like Per, uh, persecute Vero for <laughs> his uh, for having a sort of stoic, um, you know, view of this sort of um, uh, uh, one God. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So, as long as you don't try to, as long as you don't make life difficult for your neighbors, you're you're and you're okay. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. So yeah. So what is the problem here? Uh, why why bother to try to show that all these different aspects of Roman religion depended upon belief. Well, it's because for a while it was um, just the commonplace thing was to say that Roman religion was not about belief. And so it starts really in the, in the 19th century um, where people start talking about sort of how deficient or laughable or um, um, sort of pale and weak Roman religious beliefs are. And then in the by the 20th century, you've got, you know, great scholars of religion like Arthur Darby Nock saying that in a sense that Roman religion is just a bunch of cult acts 
It's about practice. It's not a matter of belief. So just not, it's not that Romans have like weak or poor or laughable beliefs. It's just, they don't have any, it's just not, it's just not relevant. Belief's just not relevant. And so then by the end of the 20th century, well, you could jump down to the bottom. Uh, Simon Price has a very important book, Rituals and Power, 1984. Uh, he's drawing on anthropology. There's a whole thing going on in anthropology where they're worrying about whether non-Western people have belief. And like uh, 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 Rodney Needham, a really important anthropologist, uh, p- decides in 1971 that, uh, not, in fact, other non-Western people don't have belief at all. And we wouldn't n- be able to recognize it if they did anyway. And and furthermore, the concept of belief in Western sort of so- culture and societies is incoherent and nonsensical. So Price is going with that. And he's, he says he says here, the centrality of religious belief in our culture has somehow led to the feeling that belief is a distinct and natural capacity that's shared by all human beings. This is nonsense. Ritual is what there was. There was no belief. And he thinks belief was born, he says, it was born out of the experience of the apostles of the risen Lord. Like that was the moment at which belief came into existence in the world. Um so yeah, the Romans didn't have it, and so then this just scat, you know goes throughout all the literature. Um, experience uh, Beard, North, and Price in their very important handbook on uh, Roman religion say experiences, beliefs, disbeliefs had no particularly privileged role in defining an individual's action, behavior, sense of identity. So belief is just sort of irrelevant, really, to the study of Roman religion. That's what I was responding to and trying to show pretty definitively that um that i didn't think that could make sense you know <laughs> ultimately even though they have some points here and there um it's roman belief is not the same as christian belief in the sense of having a creed or something like that that you then produce you know schisms over it's definitely not like that um nonetheless there is belief and we need to understand it if we want to understand the romans so if I, uh, I'll pause and just see if that makes sense, why I would embark on this quest, this, this task. Um, so one solution then to this problem of scholars saying there was no belief, well, one thing I could have done is just gone through uh, many, many texts and just looked for Latin words that, and Latin talk that seemed to be about belief. And um, um, so here you have, um, from Cicero's De Natura Deorum, you have this character, Cotta, who is a, he's an academic, like philosophically, he's an academic uh, skeptic, you know, of the skeptical academy, um, but he's also a pontifex. Uh, he's a priest, a Roman priest, and he's arguing with Balbus, who's a Stoic. Uh, and uh, he's saying, look, Balbus, you imply um, uh uh, that I should uh, support the beliefs that we have received from our ancestors concerning the immortal gods, the rites, the ceremonies, the religious traditions. He says, but I, I will always support and always have supported these beliefs, uh, and nor will the discourse of any person, you know, and here he must be thinking of like, you know, some philosophical discourse ever budge me from the um, belief uh, that I have received from our ancestors about the cult of the immortal gods. So in other words, I should uh, 
accept the traditional beliefs. I always have, and nothing's going to move me from it. So I could have gone and found, um, could have done that forever, right? And that's that's one way to go. Um, what I chose to do instead is, uh, let's see here. Let me, uh, you, you all see this nice, uh, the theory of intentionality. I decided to take a more theoretical approach to it. And I still reference and use tons of Latin texts and inscriptions and whatnot. But I, the the I wanted a theoretical framework to put it in. And what I came to was the theory of intentionality. And I, I sort of loosely, uh, or I, I um, smuggle this into the term like cognitive science or cognitive theory. Um, but really, this is more of usually it's of more interest to philosophers than like psychologists and whatnot. But this theory of intentionality comes from um, Franz Brentano in the late 19th century. What he's trying to do is make psychology a discrete science with its own scientific object that is irreducible to like anything else. Just, just as Durkheim is trying to make society an object of scientific inquiry, and he wants to make sure that society is not reducible to just the psychological states of the individuals who make up society, right? Well, Brantano wants to um, take individual psychology as this irreducible and uh, uh, sui generis unique thing to be studied. And so he says, well, what is it about the psychological or the mental that makes it what it is and makes it irreducible to like neurons? I mean, he didn't say that, but I'm saying it makes it irreducible to neurons or chemicals in your brain or whatever. Um, he said, it's that every mental phenomena phenomenon has this unique property of including something as object within itself. So he says, when something is, when you're experiencing a presentation, it's not, you can't say to someone like, so you couldn't say, oh, I'm, I'm experiencing the present, a presentation. And then someone says, well, what's it a presentation of? And you say nothing in particular, it's just a presentation. No, there's always something presented in a presentation, like a perception, right? When you have a judgment, you judge that, you know, some something is so or or not so, right? There's an object of judgment. You don't just, you can't say to someone, well, I'm, I am I came to a judgment. And then they say, well, what's it about? And you say, well, nothing in particular. It's just a judgment, um, right? So same with love, right? In love, something, something is loved. There's an object. In hate, there's some object hated. In desire, some object is desired and so on. And the same goes for belief. And he pointed out that nothing else in the natural world does this. Like trees don't contain an object <laughs> in themselves. They're just out there treeing. They're out there being trees. But our, all of our mental states, and this is, he calls it the mark of the mental. The mark of the mental is that every mental state uh, contains an object within itself. Okay, I'll pause for a question about that. That's the like, the, the fundamental, oops, sorry. That's the fundamental sort of theory I wanted to work with, because um, um, it allows you to make sense of all the the sort of the, the whole economy of the mental and fit belief in where it belongs. Because when you in belief, something is believed, you can't say, I have a belief. And then someone says, what's it about? And you say, I don't, nothing, nothing really. It's just a belief. No, it's about something. So it has an object. It contains, it's about an object, right? Good. All right. So uh, let's see, what's the next slide? Yeah, I sort of already explained. All no, I didn't explain all this. So, so the idea behind intentionality is that um, 
all mental states are representational. They're about an object. And then they fall into two really broad types. And uh, I found this really useful for getting a handle on belief. Um, some mental states or mental episodes, I use the word episode because it encompasses all sorts of things. There's actually, there's mental states like a belief. Like right now, you weren't thinking of it, but you believe that Obama was president from 2008 to 2016, right? Um, that was a, it's a mental state. It was this state of your sort of cognitive system, but it wasn't activated, but you did believe it now. And now you're aware of believing it, but, um, uh, you know, before you weren't, so it's just this state that's sort of humming along, but there's other things like mental acts, like when you divide, uh, four by two, uh, um, and there's mental, um, um, events like, um, when you have a sudden intuition come to mind, uh, yeah, et cetera. So mental episodes can contains all that. Now there's practical episodes and there's just a whole class and you can just generate, you know, generate them. There's desire, there's hope, there's intention. These, in, in these cases, when you have a hope, a desire and an intention, you're representing an object, you're representing something in the world, not as it is, but as you know, you would that it were, or as you plan to make it. So right, like right now, um, I have this desire for, you know, chocolate ice cream. It's not that there's any chocolate ice cream. It's just that I sure do wish there were. And so I'm representing this object that actually doesn't even exist. And then I might intend to go get it. And that's uh, to go get chocolate ice cream. And that's me. That's mentally representing an object um, in under the sort of aspect of a plan, right? A, a plan of action. And it guides what I do. Then there's what I call doxastic episodes. And this is another, the sort of other whole half of the sort of cognitive economy. Um, and this includes belief, knowledge, conjecture, you know, guesses, doubt, um, all that sort of thing. And that's where it, all these different sort of states represent the world as we take it to actually be, right? So you don't uh, tend to hold beliefs that you don't, it doesn't make sense to say, I believe, you know, that Joe Biden is president, but I know it's not true or something like that, right? Yet, like you wouldn't believe it if you thought it wasn't true. The whole point of a belief is to represent the world as it is, uh, which is not to say that we don't have all sorts of false beliefs. And it's not to say that we're not deluded and we and that we don't delude ourselves in all sorts of ways. Uh, it's just that the basic job of belief is to represent the world as it stands, right? Um, okay. And it, the why talk about belief? Well, it's the least marked term for a doxastic state. That's Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, cognitive scientist. And it's true. If you look at philosophy, psychology, cognitive science, the literature, it, it all uses the word belief in this very bland, unmarked way. And it doesn't mean, you know, the mental state that the apostles uh, experienced when they beheld the risen Lord. It just, that's not, it, it means that and everything else, like believing that there's some milk in the fridge, you know, it's, it's, just this uh, unmarked state for just representing how the world is, you know? Does that, I hope that all makes sense. If there's any uh, any questions, um, now, yeah, take a moment because we're moving on to another section. So that's what I take belief to be. Um, if anyone has a question, just interrupt me. That's oh, what I take belief to be. Yes. Uh, Real quick, just going back. Um, first of all, thank you. This is fascinating. On the Roman religion, my experience with it as a classics major and to some extent studying the history is it i um 
it was very dependent on their military conquest, or I should say military and war was very important to the Romans. And they seemed to invoke their gods and almost, you know, it was their gods versus others. Would would you describe the religion as transactional at all? As in they um, give certain benefits, certain honor to their gods and expect something in return? Or... Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, this is a good moment to just ex- like state a thesis that I would you know definitely uh, hold uh, and argue for, which is that Ro- the Roman their their relations with their gods were just an extension of their social relations with each other, and um, you know they very much conceived the gods not as being somehow transcendent. Um, and standing outside the some kind of the created order, but really as being imminent in in uh, their their world. I mean, the gods were just right there with them. They were just, in a sense, more powerful um, social actors um, with whom they had relations. And so, just as the Romans very frequently had very transactional sort of I you know, I pat your back you, or whatever, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, relations with one another, they they often had the same kind of relations with their God. O- often, but not always, yeah. It's just part of the religion, yeah. And so there's certain, I'm sure you've heard the famous, you know, little formula, do ut des, right? I give so that you may give. Um, that sort of represents that transactional kind of side of things, right? Like, Hey, Jupiter, I'm giving you, you know, I'm sacrificing a nice chicken to you and I'm doing it so that you'll do this for me. And it's just very much, a, yeah, it's a quid pro quo. Um, so that's absolutely a part of the whole system. And it's just, again, like I said, it's it's because the religion and the gods are really just a part of the social world. You know, that's how I see it. No, thank you. That's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So um, I want to get into like uh, one little brief aspect of um, like uh, how did the Romans sort of come to their beliefs? And one one thing that I go into in the book in some detail is this um, uh, this propensity of the human mind to see or intuit animacy and agency. And here I just want you to think back to that passage from the Aeneid where the various, you know, people who lived around the Capitoline Hill just had this sense that there was someone or something that was alive and powerful up there, you know, and it was sort of made the hair on the back of their neck stand up, you know. Um, uh, There's all sorts of uh, cognitive science research showing the the ex, you know extreme sensitivity to animacy and agency of human the human mind and our our willingness to sort of promiscuously attribute animacy and agency you know out into the world even to non-agential processes um, and this could be as simple as you hear a rustle in the leaves and you jump because you think there's something there and it might get you you know um um uh to uh an example like this that i've got here and maybe some of you have actually had this experience in a museum i know i have um where you look at a statue and you just your mind like keeps giving you this intuition that it's alive like have you ever done that have you ever gone in a museum and like walked up to a statue and had this uncanny sense 
that you sort of you sort of flash back and forth between this uncanny sense that the statue is alive and this other sense that no, it's just a statue. Come on, I've had that. Um, and uh, Lucilius, this Roman satirist from the Republican period, he notices this and he composes this poem, which was preserved for us by the Christian author Lactantius. Um, and Lucilius says, just as infant children believe all bronze statues live and are human beings, so those, and he means superstitious people, suppose that imagined dreams are true. They believe that a heart lies within bronze statues. And Lactantius goes on to say, you know, um, this is how these dumb pagans are. They think that these bronze statues are actually gods. And he goes on to say, these poor adults, these pagans, they're actually in a worse condition than the children because the children will grow up and they'll grow out of thinking that the statues are alive. But these poor pagans think that the statues in their jaw in their temples uh, actually are the gods. Um, and so what's happening with the children is that, um, um, this sort of tendency of the human mind to sort of intuit or sense or feel animacy and agency is being triggered by these human-like forms, and the kids sort of freak out and, ah, you know, it's alive. Um, my son used to be freaked out by the uh, the Sphinx and the uh, pen, uh, Penn's uh, Anthropology and Archaeology Museum. He would, you know, run <laughs> run to me and bury his head in my shoulder, you know, when he saw it because he thought it was alive. Um, and so this is one of the sort of sources of the kind of religious, uh, the ability to eat, to believe in gods at all that we saw uh, in the Virgil episode, right? Um, okay, well, so one of the things about Roman religious culture with its statues, all of its pageantry, um, with the way they worshiped the statues, treating them very much as if alive, like uh, bathing them, sometimes, et cetera. Um, this is a, a, they have a, they had a religious culture that worked with natural social intuitions about animacy and agency and, you know, turned those natural uh, intuitions into theological beliefs. Um, and so their religious culture, yeah, worked with this natural propensity to see animacy and agency everywhere rather than against it. Another place that you can see this at work is in the Roman uh, practice of re re receiving and accepting prodigies. And I'll just say really briefly that something really strange would happen. There would be a hail of stones or, um, you know, a calf would be born with two heads or a river would run with blood and it would be this really uncanny event. And it would get reported to the Senate and the Senate would deliberate and they would decide whether to accept it as a genuine prodigy. And if it was accepted, it would be referred to the priests so that they could expiate it. Because the idea was that if it was accepted, it was accepted as, in a sense, an artifact of a divine agent. Like, why did it rain stones? Why did the river run with blood? It's the gods that did it. So it's a, it's an agential way of interpreting the world you know it's a way of seeing events in the world as being driven by an agent even when it's not obvious who or what that agent is so you see that uh the way they dealt with statues the way they worked the way they accepted and talked about prodigies as being somehow caused by the gods or somehow signs of something about the gods um 
this all of this works with the natural human inclination to attribute animacy and agency out into the world to make sense of the world in terms of agential uh you know doings i'll say briefly that um this 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 in, this sort of net, the facility with which our minds deal with animacy and agency is also behind conspiracy theories because you know a conspiracy theory one way to think of it is you're connect you're finding a pattern it's your brain seeing a pattern and then asking how the heck did that pattern get there? And then one option that's harder to believe is that, well, it's just a bunch of coincidences. It's just, a, that's just unsatisfying. What, you know, what's satisfying, uh, you know, um, um, you know, some shadowy organization or, or person did it, you know, um, it's a, it's the product, that pattern that your brain has picked out is the product of agency. And so we just were very, and that's why we like narratives because we, because narratives are about agents and the doings of agents. So, and that's why it's so hard to accept. Uh, that's why it's so hard to really master the theory of evolution and natural selection because the, your mind wants to keep going back to the idea that someone is doing something for a purpose. And it's very hard to accept that it's just totally random accidents that happen to be, to like confer survival value on some animal and, they get, and we can't even not use a word like selected, which is an agential word, right? We we still, we have recourse to this language of agency in spite of ourselves, right? So that's the point is simply, uh, I think, probably taken by now, right? <laughs> we, we think in terms of agents. Um, and so the Roman religious culture uh, in, endorsed and supported thinking in terms of agency and in particular divine agency. Okay, so I'll move on because um, I want to get into some of these other parts of the argument. Um, belief and emotion. Okay, so if we accept that the Romans had any kind of religious emotion, just like the awe that the rustics feel in the presence of the Capitoline Hill, we have to accept that they had belief. And we can do this on their own terms, right? So Cicero lays out a, a Stoic theory of emotion in the Tusculan Disputations, and he says that the entire cause, not only of distress, but also of all the remaining emotions, is in belief. And his word here is opinio. Um, and he spells it out, he, you know, the belief in question, is, sorry, is that a thing, something, is either good or bad. Um, and when we believe that something is bad for us and for what we care about, like, you know, my son or whatever, then this belief gives rise to negative emotions. So if I think I'm about to, you know, there's a, if I believe there's a tiger approaching me and I believe that's bad for me, <laughs> I might be terrified. If I believe that someone I love has, has become gravely ill, uh, I believe that's bad for me and for the person I love and I might feel sorrow. So my emotions are driven by what I believe, Right. Um, and so this is actually this ancient view of emotions and their basis in belief actually informs uh, a lot of cognitive science and cognitive theories of belief. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, when the content of your belief changes, if you start thinking, well, I'm not in danger or this thing is not dangerous or um, my friend is not actually ill your emotion instantly changes, right? So your emotion depends on the kind of beliefs you have, right? Um, so here is an example from uh, Roman prodigies, right? Which I talked about just a moment ago. Um, Livy, this is Livy, uh, the historian, 
um, talking about how, you know, during the, this winter, this is the, the first winter of the Hannibalic War, right? The Second Punic War. At Rome or in the vicinity, many prodigia, many prodigies occurred. Um, uh, and they were announced and rashly believed. Um, and so uh, um, um, this belief that these prodigies had happened um, caused uh, religious anxiety. Um, um, and the way to relieve the religious... So once the people believed that there had been these prodigies, they became anxious. And uh, how do you relieve the anxiety? Well, you 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 generate a new set of beliefs and you do that through rituals and vows. And you do those all in accord with the Sibylline books and the prescriptions of the priests. But once the people come to believe that the appropriate measures have been taken in response to the prodigies, this relieves the people's mind of this religious care, right? So you can see in this passage and in many others like it, the 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 way that uh, belief and emotion um, and religious action are all mutually implicated, right? And uh, so the takeaway from this um, is that emotions, including you know religious emotions, depend on beliefs, on representations of what is the case, right? When I believe that there are these prodigies, I become religious, I become anxious, filled with a kind of religious anxiety. When I believe that the rituals have been performed uh, appropriately um, to resolve the prodigies, I experience the emotion of religious relief. Um, so that's how belief and emotion go together. Now, I, re I realize uh, we're, we've got till six, right? And um, uh, we've got like 10 minutes or so. And so, you know, I could go through a few different parts or uh how would you like to do this would you like to talk about maybe um action and belief or uh social um i could talk about the how social reality is generated actually by belief would that be uh maybe the way to go i'll defer to moderators on that i i think i see both heads nodding and thumbs up on the on the kind of social point so i think that's okay. education yeah yeah okay yeah so I, I i go into some i i actually appeal to like aristotle and also and lucretius and a variety of ancient authors to point out that you know action doesn't make sense without um belief that in order to act i'll just say this very briefly in order to act at all, you have to have a, the conjunction of a doxastic state, like a belief and a practical state. So you have to sort of, um, you know, desire to drink water as in Aristotle's example, and then believe that this thing is water. Um, just the desire to drink water alone won't get you drinking. Just the belief that this cup is full of water won't get you drinking. You have to both believe that there's water and desire to drink it in order to to drink and the same goes for ritual action um uh okay but let's yeah let's close with this sort of uh really brief look at how religious reality was created and the role of belief in it so this is again a passage from livy um and what he's talking about is when the second king of rome numa was 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 inaugurated as king after the death of romulus and so he just describes the ritual and he says, you know, I'll just read this. When he, Numa, had been led to the citadel, and this is up on the Capitoline Hill, by an augur. And this is a very specific priest whose job, it, one of whose main jobs is to inaugurate uh, other priests, and in this case, a king. Um, 
He sat on a stone facing south, the auger, head covered, holding in his right hand a hooked staff, which they call a lituus, took a seat to the left of him. Then, after he, the augur, took into his view the city and countryside, prayed to the gods, marked the regions from east to west, uh, he declared the parts to the south to be right, those to the north to be left. So he's dividing up the visual landscape. He marked with his mind a sign opposite him as far away as his eyes could see. Then uh, he put his hand on Numa's head and prayed, Father Jupiter, if it's religiously acceptable, and the word here is fas, F-A-S, that this man, Numa Pompilius, be king of Rome, may you exhibit to us clear signs within the boundaries that I have established. And those are those boundaries of the landscape into left and right. Then he specified in words, he has to be clear, the uh, the auspicia, these are the uh, auspices, the signs that he wanted Jupiter to send. When these auspices were sent, and they were the right auspices, Numa was declared king and he descended from the Templum. So, okay, we've got the creation of a piece of, re of reality here, right? Numa has been made a king. He's been created king. Um, let's look briefly at like the, uh, the, the way this ritual goes, you know, um, there's this whole Roman sort of grammar and vocabulary of bird signs. And that's what the augur would have specified to Jupiter. He would have said, you know, send, uh, uh, Oskines are singing birds, alites are flying birds. You know, he would have said, send a, a raven croaking on the left and a, um, a you know, whatever, a, um, a eagle flying on the right, whatever it was, Jupiter did it. Okay, so that's that's the scene, right? Now let's let's back up and consider it two different ways. Let's imagine that you're a naive observer and you've just watched this scene. You just like popped into ancient Rome and you just saw this thing happen and you have no idea what's going on. What you would see is a man, you know, uh, touching while uttering and gesturing another man. You would have seen a guy with his hand on another man's head making some noises and gesturing. And then you might have seen some birds flying or singing, and they would have been, you know, who knows, like a hundred feet away. Um, so that's what a naive observer would see. They wouldn't see a priest. They wouldn't see birds that were signs of the God's will. However, the Romans thought that in this ritual, these, these birds and their actions were signs of the divine will. And here's just one example of a Roman talking about it. This is in Cicero's De Divinatione, and this is his brother uh, uh, Quintus um, saying, the divine mind causes you know, some effects in birds so that flying birds, these, these auspical signs, fly here and there while singing birds, again, these signs, these auspicia, sing now on the right, now on the left. He says, for, you know, after all, every animal moves its body as it wishes and can do these things without even thinking about it. How much easier is it for the God to cause these effects? After all, you know, everything obeys his will, right? So this is then the sort of, if you will, the religious ideology of this ritual. Um, and once you uh, believe that once you are initiated into that. And can everyone see the full image here? Is it blocked for you or is it, is it legible? Is it, um, oops, see Daisy. Okay. That's no good. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, trying to be, uh, trying to be too clever. And now I have to figure out how to show it again. Um, 
That's not what I want though. Uh, all right, you'd think I would have this down, right? Let's see here. How do we uh, view present? Where is present? Uh, slideshow, uh, play from current. Okay, there we go. What you see if you're not a naive observer is you see a priest, an augur, inaugurating a candidate, and you see that priest appealing to Jupiter. And then when you see the birds flying, you actually interpret their flight as caused by Jupiter. You see them as sent by Jupiter in this action two panel. And then the sort of the outcome that you see is that this candidate um, has been created and then de thus declared an augur. You see that someone's social and religious status has changed. So what I'm trying to draw attention to here is that the things in and of themselves don't contain the meaning. The meaning comes from um, having been enculturated into a religious tradition. And so, you know, it's not enough, as many modern scholars have wanted to do, to talk about some, a ritual like this as mere action, as like empty cult, as um, mere orthoprax going through the motions. No, there's a, a system of belief underlying this that actually makes the system, the series of actions, what they are. It actually makes that series of actions into the ritual that it is. Does that is that clear? That that fundamental point that if you don't believe that the one guy is an auger and the other guy is a candidate, and if you don't believe that the auger is appealing to an unseen agent, Jupiter, and if you don't furthermore believe now, you can be a skeptic about this if you're a Roman, but if you don't at least understand that people do believe that when the birds appear it's from it's because of divine the divine will you know if you don't have all these beliefs then you haven't witnessed a ritual you haven't witnessed this ritual um and if you haven't witnessed this ritual you also haven't seen socio-religious reality transform this candidate was turned into an augur with all the powers and all the um, the rights and also the obligations that come with that, right? So this is um, rich. The ritual itself and then the social reality created in the ritual all depend on belief, right? So this is the takeaway that the religious effects of some rituals, right? The creation of a priest, but also the very ritual itself were constitu constituted by the collective beliefs of the Romans. If they didn't believe the way they did, it wouldn't have been the ritual that it was. If they didn't believe the way they did, uh, that person would not have been turned into a, a king in Numa's case or a priest in, in real histor historical time. So Roman religious reality only existed uh, insofar as it was created and maintained by the beliefs, the collective beliefs of the Romans. Um, that is a very like uh, sort of brutally uh, 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 sort of simple uh, and fast um, explanation, but uh, I hope it was clear and made sense. I'm happy to field any kind of questions you may want to uh, ask. Um, that's hard to buy at first, right? I mean, think of it though. A bird flies across the sky. It's just a bird flying across the sky until you overlay it 
with a with the beliefs uh, of a tradition, right? At which point it becomes an auspicium, a sign sent by Jupiter, right? Um, that's the sort of that's the sort of point um, of that uh, that demonstration. Oh, I see. There's chat. There's things in the chat, and one can go on like. Um, you know, a sacrifice, a, a, a man, like just say a man and a woman, a husband and wife slaughtering, you know, let's just say a chicken. Is that just an act of, is that a culinary act? Is that just butchery in order to get dinner ready? Or is it a sacrifice to the gods? What makes the difference? It's the beliefs that make the difference. It's what they think they're doing. It's the way they describe. And it's the way outside observers would describe and understand what they're doing. Um, so that's the that's sort of the in a nutshell the the claim in the book is that so the religious reality of the Romans was itself a product of their belief.